1: they'd asked to be let in. But now they were demanding. In the flat, cold forest and marshlands that form the border between Poland and Belarus, an area usually very quiet was now disturbed. Around midday, migrants on the Belarusian side of the border started throwing stones and rocks and branches and all chaos has broken out. The uh, police forces have responded with water, but also with gas. It's quite difficult to breathe. For the would-be migrants, it was all about seeking a new, better life in the West. For at least one of the two neighbouring countries, it was all about Cold War by proxy. There is
2: no doubt now that this has been really actively encouraged by the Belarusian authorities.
1: Our guys are helping the migrants get
2: into the Polish territory? It's perfectly possible. I think that's absolutely possible.
1: Maybe someone helped them. I won't even look into this. Now, as the makeshift forest camps have been cleared, thousands are being housed in temporary shelter and hundreds are being repatriated. So, what have we learned from the latest migrant crisis? You're listening to Stories of Our Times, the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, when migration becomes a weapon. It was back in July that what was to become a crisis first began to take shape.
2: In an escalating row between Belarus and Lithuania and the EU, Vilnius has accused Minsk of
1: using migrants as a political weapon in retaliation for the sanctions imposed by the West. The EU had imposed sanctions on Belarus following President Lukashenko's violent crackdown on protests against the rigged election last year that returned him to power. Brussels now says Lukashenko is using the threat of uncontrolled immigration to hit back and put pressure on the bloc. Belarus relaxed its visa rules in August, while the country's national airline has ramped up flights from Middle Eastern countries. Once in Belarus, the migrants would want to cross the borders into the EU, and that wasn't something Belarus's EU neighbours were going to allow. So the migrants ended up stranded and in the open. Conditions on the Polish
2: border are dire. Temperatures are freezing and many migrants are running out of food and water. Overnight, Poland says it found the bodies of seven migrants on its side of the border.
1: To understand what was going on and why, I needed a guide.
2: My name's Peter Conradi. I'm the Europe editor of the Sunday Times. I've been to Warsaw on many occasions. I've been to Minsk, the Belarusian capital, on the other side. But I've never had the pleasure, I suppose, of going actually up to the border.
1: Peter recently travelled to the border between Poland and Belarus... To report on the thousands of people stuck in no-man's land.
2: It's the kind of territory through which, during the Second World War, Russian tanks and German tanks rumbled in opposite directions. Very, very featureless, very, very green, very, very flat countryside, very thickly wooded. It's, I think, the largest primeval forest left in Europe. And... Not the kind of place that you would really want to spend a lot of time outside in during late autumn, winter.
1: And on this trip, where did you manage to get to?
2: The attempt was to actually get to the border. So, myself and a Polish fixer, someone that sort of helped me out, we stationed ourselves in a place called Białystok, which is uh, a largish town in eastern Poland. And from there, we made A few attempts to actually reach the border itself. The area around the border has been declared a no go zone by the Polish authorities. So there are a number of roads that go up to the border, and one can get about two or three miles or so from the border. You then hit a police roadblock, and you can get no further.
1: And don't you just say to that roadblock, I'm press, I want to report, and they let you through? (laughs)
2: Sadly not, no. The Polish authorities have made very, very clear that no journalists are allowed through and
1: no aid workers are allowed through. At one point, it was estimated 4,000 people were caught between the two countries. The overwhelming majority appear to
2: be Iraqis, Syrians, uh, Yemenis. Of them, there seem to be quite a lot of Kurds some Yazidis and other sort of much persecuted ethnic group from that part of the world. There are some people also from sub-Saharan Africa.
1: Are they disproportionately younger men as one would expect, or do we have a number of families?
2: Yes, disproportionate number of men. Someone that I spoke to, one of the people in in Biawistok in the refugee centre, he said that his wife and I think three kids had been left behind. so he was going ahead. His aim was that he was going to be able to then get through to Germany and then once he'd established himself in Germany, he'd call for them and they would be allowed in under some kind of family reunification programme. That being said, there were some women there, there were some some children there, but I would say probably, very, very rough estimate, probably 60 70% youngish male.
1: Now, do we know whether they follow the pattern which we've talked about before on this programme, which is... They pay some money to people smugglers, maybe masquerading as travel agents in somewhere like Istanbul, get on a flight to Minsk or somewhere else, and then are driven by their smugglers up to the border. Is that broadly how it happens?
2: I was talking to a 34-year-old Yazidi gentleman who was in the camp in Białystok in eastern Poland. And I asked him how he got there. And he, first of all, went on the Internet and he found someone offering almost like package tour from Istanbul to Minsk with the promise of sort of further travel onwards to Germany, which is, I think, where he particularly wanted to go. So he made his way from his home in in northern Iraq, went to Istanbul got on a plane. He was a little bit vague about which kind of plane it was or who the operator of the plane was. It was explained to me, the person who was interpreting for me, that he was actually illiterate, this guy, and so he couldn't read huh. read the insignia on the side of the plane. But then when the guy said to him, OK, well, what, my interpreter said to him, "Well, what kind of announcements did they make on the plane? And he said, what was the first language that they announced? in?" And, he, you know, he recognised English and he also said... It was a language that sounded like Russian. I think that was possibly a Belarusian plane that took him there. And so essentially, people would pay, I think, something like $3,000 or so. So probably about two and a half thousand pounds to be flown from Istanbul or maybe from Baghdad or maybe from Damascus to Minsk. When they arrived in Minsk, he said they were given a night's accommodation in some kind of a fairly sleazy hotel. And then they were told, the border is in that direction. You're on your own now, mate. Get a taxi. It's not clear how much he paid for that taxi. Belarus is a fairly poor country, so it probably wouldn't cost him a huge amount of money. And then they arrived at the border, got out of the taxi and that was it.
1: To what extent do we know whether the attitude of the Belarusian authorities has acted as a magnet to the people smugglers, or uh, in other words, they knew that the Belarusian authorities would expedite their journey, or to what extent do we know whether it was just opportunism?
2: It is very difficult to know how or why precisely it started, but I think there is No doubt now that this has been really actively encouraged by the Belarusian authorities, because there wouldn't be this flow of people coming to Minsk if it wasn't with the connivance of the Belarusian authorities. Belarus, one should bear in mind, is a very authoritarian country. They control everything. And they are... I think, not only turning a blind eye to this, but they're very much encouraging it. I think there are big differences between the big migrant crisis of 2015, which was in a sense, a spontaneous flow of people out of the Middle East and other countries towards Western Europe. This time around, this is a sense, is a kind of an artificial crisis. It appears to have been really ramped up by the Belarusian authorities who are out for revenge against Europe. Rush hour this morning in western Belarus, and they were only heading one way, towards the European Union. These are people who've come to Minsk, the Belarusian capital. They've worked their way across the border. They've been under the impression that it will be relatively easy for them to make their way through. and. If you try and imagine the border, the border consists, as all borders do, of kind of two sets of border fences or border fortifications. First, obviously, they have to encounter the, the Belarusian ones. Then there's a kind of a no man's land. And then there is the Polish border. Thirty
0: men, women and children from Iraq's Kurdish region stuck in no man's land for days and nights at a time under the gaze of armed border guards, unable
2: to move forward or go back. It appears to be, judging from accounts of people that I've spoken to, relatively easy for them to get through the Belarusian border, not least because on occasions the Belarusian soldiers appear to be helping them to get through. They want to get rid of these people, so they're sending them through. Then they get into the middle section, into the no man's land, and they have to find a way through the Polish fortifications. Now, the Poles Unlike the Belarusians, they do not want them to come through. And so the Polish forces, of which there are now, I think, something like 15,000 spread out along the border, are there to stop people getting through. The Polish authorities are monitoring the movement of people on the other side of the border, tracking migrants and asylum seekers from the air. The government has drafted in thousands of extra guards to fortify the nation's defences. Despite that, it's a long border... There are gaps in the border. It isn't as if it's a continuous fence. And so they manage to get through and they then find themselves in this vast forest on the other side and they then have to try and work their way out of the forest.
1: So there's a kind of cat and mouse game or is it nearer to whack-a-mole, really, which is that the border forces are trying to find the gaps where people are getting through and close them up?
2: The... Eventual aim of the Polish authorities, and indeed of neighbouring Latvia and Lithuania, which are also facing the same issue, is to build an impregnable border defence, border wall, all the way along their border with Belarus, so nobody can get through, almost a kind of Donald Trump's dream, as it were. Because then, in a sense, if they can't come through, it's not Poland's problem. It remains Belarus's problem.
1: Coming up, the big power row behind the plight of the migrants at the border. But first...
0: I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The
2: Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
1: Now, let's look at the geopolitics of this, Peter. The way in which it's been reported is that the authoritarian leader of Belarus, Lukashenko, has been trying to undermine his EU neighbours by allowing illegal migrants across the border, in fact, encouraging them. Is that what we understand to be happening? Our guys are helping the migrants get into the Polish territory.
2: It's perfectly possible. I think that's absolutely possible. Maybe someone helped them. I won't even look into this. The Belarusians, of course, deny that. And the Russians, who are their allies, also deny that. But that is the explanation that, that everyone else uh, is putting on it. And given that this really does seem to be an artificially created crisis, it's difficult to disagree with it. Alexander Lukashenko, who's been in power in belarus since 1994 which is an extraordinary long time and i had the pleasure of interviewing him in 1994 which shows how old i am and how long i've been covering these things (laughs) and there were elections in belarus in the summer of last year he stood for re-election for yet another five-year term he was overwhelmingly elected everyone agreed outside Belarus, that the elections were rigged. There were massive demonstrations. He faced down the demonstrators. Europe responded with all manner of sanctions. He's still there. He's crossed with Europe. And this is the perfect opportunity for him to cause a bit of mischief
1: and to get his own back on Europe. Lukashenko, who naturally denies fomenting the crisis, spoke to the BBC last week.
2: I told the EU
1: I'm not going to detain migrants on the border, hold them at the border, and if they keep coming from now on, I still won't stop them. Because they're not coming to my country, they're going to yours. The West stopped talking to us and working with us. If you don't want to, then fine. We'll sort this problem out ourselves as best we can. Now, of course, the problem with escalations like this is they can go one of two ways. You can either get your opponent to back down, or your opponent can decide that they're going to escalate as well. What's your reading of the calculation of Lukashenko here?
2: I think he has reached a point where he's not particularly worried about further sanctions because the EU has been essentially, and Britain and uh, the, the America, have been imposing varying degrees of sort of escalating sanctions on him for the past few months. So a few more sanctions, which have just been agreed by the EU and which were entirely predictable, are not going to make a huge difference to him. Lukashenko has tried over time to chart a kind of a middle course between Europe and Russia and to somehow play one off against the other which he was doing relatively successfully until a few years ago. What has happened more recently is since the rigged election of summer last year, Lukashenko has realised that the West has effectively closed
1: its door to him. That's made him dependent on Putin. Belarus, formerly a republic in the Soviet Union, sits between the EU and Russia. So he is dependent on Putin, but Putin
2: isn't completely controlling him either. So Lukashenko still has the capacity to do sort of unexpected things to slightly embarrass Putin. I mean, Hmm. for example, Lukashenko made a threat to Europe. And at one point he said...
1: We are warming Europe and they threaten us to shut the border. What if we cut natural gas supplies?
2: And less than 24 hours later immediately Putin's spokesman Dmitry Peskov who's very very close to him came forward and said no actually no we won't (laughs) cut off the gas Russia is a very reliable supplier of gas this was just uh, Lukashenko himself and then Putin gave a television interview to Russian media in which he sort of said oh well he just gets a little bit excitable Putin doesn't like him at all You look at when they have meetings, the body language between them is very, very uncomfortable. But on the other hand, Putin does like the way that Lukashenko is really stirring up the Europeans. He's really putting them in a corner. And I mean, anything that embarrasses the EU, anything that embarrasses the West in general, is all very, very welcome to Putin.
1: Now, let's talk about the EU's response. I mean, this came at a very difficult time in terms of relations between the EU centrally and Poland.
2: This is what gives an extra dimension to this crisis, which is that the Polish government, together with the Hungarian government, both been fighting the past few months, or probably longer than that, with Brussels over a number of issues. I mean, these are both fairly right-wing, conservative, nationalistic governments. There a number of issues with which they disagree with the kind of the EU mainstream. A decision that's put Poland on a collision course with Brussels. The president of the Constitutional Tribunal declared some articles of the EU treaties clash with clauses in the Polish constitution. In the case of Poland, the particular issue that has really come to a head is whether or not polish law has primacy over eu law or not so you have this background of very very difficult relations between poland and the eu the eu has already imposed daily fines on poland for not being compliant with eu rules so in the middle of all this we have this crisis which adds to the problems faced by the EU, because how do they deal with it? And in a sense, the way they appear to be dealing with it is to separate out the two issues, to continue to punish Poland on one level for its legal reforms, and on the other level, to show solidarity with Poland as far as the border is concerned. Because the argument is that this isn't really a Polish problem, this is a European problem, because if the migrants come into Poland... Most of them certainly don't want to stay in Poland. They're going to move westwards, essentially into Germany and then onwards. So there is this irony, but they are kind of doomed to help Poland because if they don't help Poland, then it's a European
1: problem. Let's just talk about that for a moment. I mean, at one level, you could make the argument that this isn't a really a huge problem. The numbers that we're talking about are not massive, It could quite easily be absorbed. And that by making it sound like a very big problem, essentially, Europe and the Polish government have given Lukashenko what he wants.
2: There is a sense in which they have played into Lukashenko's hands because this sense of crisis is very much what Lukashenko wants. One could also argue that in a perverse way, it's actually helping the Polish government because the Polish government likes to appear tough on law and order, it likes to appear tough on immigration. And so therefore, by actually stopping these people from coming into Poland, that actually goes down quite well with their core voters. And it's quite interesting if one watches Polish television, as I've been doing, the state media is very, very pro-government. And there is also one biggish private TV channel, which is still operating, and you watch the two news broadcasts, one after the other in the evening, you get a completely different view of what's going on. But if you watch Polish state television, after having seen the awful conditions at the border, one then cuts to interviews with ordinary Poles on the street, in which, when asked, do you approve of what the government is doing? Do you approve of the hard line that they're taking?
1: We have to help, but we have to protect our borders as well. So they do not cross and do nothing bad to us. Once they cross, we have to help the women and children, but not the men, because we don't know what they really are.
2: Of course, a chorus of yes,
1: of course we approve, we've got to keep these people out. While the immediate humanitarian crisis at the Polish-Bielorussian border has been dialed back, the Poles are still wary. On Sunday, the Polish Prime Minister tweeted that Lukashenko had launched a hybrid war against the EU and called it the greatest attempt to destabilise Europe in 30 years. So what now?
2: This isn't the end of the story at the border because what we've seen in the past few days is to some extent an easing of the situation. About 400 Iraqis were flown back from Minsk, the Belarusian capital, to Iraq... The Belarusians themselves have also moved a large number of migrants away from sort of the makeshift camp in which they were at the border. They've moved them back into a warehouse a little bit further from the border. But, you know, there are still a large number of migrants there. There have been complaints from the Poles that, again, they've been attempting to push their way through, perhaps in smaller groups than before. And given that there are all these migrants still In Belarus, they're kind of available as a sort of resource for Lukashenko. At any time he wants to ratchet the conflict up again, he can just basically pick them all up, direct them to the border, and give them a little shove. And it will lead again to a further worsening of the crisis, which will then put greater pressure
1: on the Poles to do something. And Peter, isn't this in the end just the latest stage in the issue of ongoing extra legal migration into the EU?
2: This is all part of a broader problem. Large numbers of people still want to get from the Middle East in particular, but also from sub-Saharan Africa, other poorer parts of the world. They want to get into Europe. And for the time being, it seems that this route through Belarus will have been closed off. But that doesn't mean to say that people are going to stop coming. Huge numbers of people are still coming through the Mediterranean routes into southern Europe, continuing to push their way up towards more affluent parts of northern Europe. So this is something that from time to time one route will open, that route will perhaps close again. But this is something that is going to go on and on, and of those people, some will want to stay in the EU, particularly in Germany. Some of them, for various reasons, will want to continue westwards and come to Britain.
1: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times Europe editor, Peter Conradi. You can read more of Peter's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to... Stories of our Times at times.co.uk. We really do read them. See you tomorrow.